Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Where do we get our ideas about an afterlife? Do animals get one? What is heaven? Hello there, and welcome to the 236th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and the first of two shows we plan to do on the subject of heaven. Oh God, I can just see the emails and controversy rolling in before this even happens. I know, I know, I'm just saying. So I'm Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But But before we do that... We are going to do our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, in what 1981 movie are the ghost hunters ghosts themselves? And the answer was, Scooby-Doo meets the Boo, meets the Boo Brothers. Now, well, yeah, Scooby-Doo meets the Boo Brothers. You, you and your brother grew up with that. Yeah. Now, if we had a dollar for everyone who answered Ghostbusters, we wouldn't have to do this. But the fact is that nobody got the answer, so let's try something else. They weren't ghosts, though. They were just regular people. Okay, so this question is, what famous UFO incident occurred off the coast of eastern Canada in 1967? So get that right and win a copy of my dad's book, Turning Home, God's Ghosts and Human Destiny. Or God, Ghosts and Human Destiny. I always put a G in front of that, or an S in front of that. You're a polytheist at heart. Yeah. Okay, so call us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240. And if nobody gets a winner... Or nobody gets the answer before the end of the show, and you still think you have a shot? Drop a line to me at bennettbehindtheparanormal.com. Okay, now before we uh, proceed, I wanted to mention something that I just found out before the show began, and that's that our good friend uh, Joseph W. Frisella, who was a member of our, uh, if you want to say, paranormal investigation team uh, for some years before Ben joined me, uh, passed away this weekend, or translated, as we said. Uh, Joe was a, um, a wonderful fellow. He was a, a professional engineer in southern Rhode Island, very well thought of in the community, uh, as all good citizens should have been, very active in civic affairs and government affairs in, in the state of Rhode Island here. And he has mentioned uh, in several of my uh, cases, certainly in the in the, in the Dark case in Footsteps in the Attic, and, uh, of course, Joe's job would be to come with us and to determine, uh, strangely enough, what sort of water table and what sort of soil was on a given site, because as uh, we developed uh, multiverse ideas, we realized that these are factors, strangely enough, uh, in the, the uh, conductivity of electromagnetic fields that have to do with these things. So we're going to miss Joe. Uh, it was a real shock to us. And uh, well, for those of you who have read about him in my books, uh, that's who he was. And we ask your prayers and good wishes for his family. Okay. So, uh, Ben, I guess you're interviewing me tonight. All right. So tell us about heaven. Okay. What, uh, do we have a call, Ben? We have two calls. All right. We didn't even start yet, and we're in trouble already. Okay. Well, uh, okay. We'll uh, welcome our first caller here. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I can barely hear you. I would adjust the audio here. Okay. Um, there we go. Okay. All right. I have a question. Uh, the answer for that question is about the UFO on the East Coast. Oh, yes. Shag Harbor. Shag Harbor is it. Ding, ding, ding. Congratulations. <laughs> Bingo. If you'd kindly give our producer your uh, name and address and uh, phone number, we'll um, get your book out to you. Oh, thanks. Okay, great. Right off the bat, that's great. That's the fastest we ever had a question answered <laughs> in three years on the air. 
Thanks a lot, sir. Oh, All right. Like okay. Oh, not bad, not bad. All right. Okay, so uh, you asked me to tell you about heaven. Okay. Yes. Uh, 25 words or less. Okay, well, Ben, you know, you're into music. Uh, the Jamaican reggae musician Peter Tosh once commented that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I don't think Jimmy Durante said that. But no, no, Peter Tosh. Yeah, well, pretty cute anyway. But there are all sorts of questions that come along with that statement. Is there a heaven? If so, what is it? Where is it? Why do people always think it's in the sky? I always found that very interesting. Is it a place or is it a state of being? Or is it both? Is it personal or does one size fit all? Do you have to die to get there? Does your soul go to heaven or is there more to it than that? Do animals have a heaven? Do animals have souls? What is a soul anyway? And the big issue for me has always been we all want to know where we go when we die, but where were we before we were conceived? Could the answer be the same for both questions? Anyway, for more than 40 years now, boy, time flies when you're having fun, I've carried on a private, informal study of people's ideas about God, religion, heaven, and hell. I've paid special attention to the contrasts between what religious, various religions teach and what their rank and file actually believe. The fact is that there are as many official ideas about an afterlife in general, and heaven in particular, as there are religions. But among individual people, there are fascinating commonalities that run from the most ancient known civilizations all the way to the present day. Ideas about heaven are especially fascinating, as that is where most people want to end up. So how far back does the idea of an afterlife go? Well, the notion of life extending beyond death seems to have been present from the very beginning of humanity, and perhaps before that, almost as though it's something every human being is born with, in a, in a funny way. Okay, so is there any evidence that animals know about an afterlife? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I strongly suspect that we're not the only species that recognizes death, understood, of course, as the end of life. Uh, and I don't think we're the only species that, that, that has a hint that it's kind of an illusion, that it doesn't really exist. And that's another story, but animals seem to have some sort of sense of that. Now, according to geneticists, chimpanzees, of all critters, are our closest living relatives in the tree of life on Earth. Uh, chimps clearly mourn their dead. In one case, at a British zoo, uh, the matriarch, the, the, the chief female of a captive chimp clan, was over 50 years old and was known to be dying. In the days before her death, the other chimps were very quiet, spending time with her in groups, frequently caressing and grooming her. When she finally died, all the chimps left, but the matriarch's oldest daughter soon returned, spending the night with the body. Zookeepers then removed the body, but the other chimps clearly remained quiet and in mourning for some days after that. Now, chimps will often keep the bodies of their dead in the midst of their communities until they mummify. Now, was this behavior an indication that chimps believe in an afterlife or have a hint of it, or is it just a form of denial? Uh, certainly, biologists are finding that chimps and many other creatures, including non-primates such as cats, dogs, birds, and even plants, I could tell you a story about that, display signs of self-awareness, sympathy, empathy, love, sadness, joy, and all the other poignancies of life that we experience. Now, you remember Karen Anderson. Yeah, I do. Yeah, a well-known author and animal communicator from Washington State. Uh, She's been on our show uh, several times, always generates a lot of excitement. Well, Karen will tell you that animals not only know about death and an afterlife, but that they understand it far better than we do. 
Now, I myself have written, this is before you were born, I myself repeatedly observed, um, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, well, I just was pointing out, we have another caller here, why, why don't we, I'll, I'll go back to my narrative in a minute, but we'll, we'll take a call. Um, hello, and uh, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, I was the one that called in a minute ago on the, on the uh, Shag Harbor thing. Oh, yeah. But I wanted to answer the girl, you said, what is heaven? <clears throat> Oh, well, that, that's not the contest question. That's no, our no. T- subject. But go ahead and give, know, give the shot. the show. It's, heaven is simply the highest level of your own consciousness. Huh. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're anticipating, uh, in a way, kind of the end of our, <laughs> end of our show. We're going to be in two shows on this, and I think you're, you're, you're getting there. Okay. I thought that's what you said at the beginning. I'm sorry. Okay, not at all. Okay. Enjoy your show. Thank you very much. I hope you... Well, you're the one who's supposed to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy. Okay, thank you. All right, there we go. Obviously, very uh, people interested in this subject. Okay. Now, as, as I was saying, I've uh, repeatedly observed some really curious behavior in cats and rabbits when it comes to matters of life and death. For 15 years, including your first four years, Ben, uh, our family lived in a little house in the New England woods, and we called the place Underhill. In England, people name their houses. They don't tend to do that here, but I do it. Because the house it was kind of nestled against an old glacial drumlin. This is in, this is down in Cumberland now. Uh, we did quite a bit of backyard farming, raising chickens and rabbits, and had as many as nine outdoor cats at any given time. I was a newspaper editor at the time. I'm, I used to be the editor of the uh, Lincoln Cumberland Observer here in uh, this area, and also down in Smithfield uh, some some years ago. But anyway, I arranged uh, late hours for myself so that I could be home during the day. That was when I was at the Providence Journal. And you and your brother, Ben, uh, while Mom was in her office, uh, had the pleasure of my company usually during the day. Mm. So we spent a lot of time with the animals. Now, cats are predators, descendants of the great jungle cats of Africa and all this. And domestic cats are often thought of as instinctive and cold-blooded killers who really make a mess out of the local environment. So we were amazed to observe what can only be described as highly developed and life-respecting customs and civilized practices even among our community of cats over a number of years. On several occasions, one or another among them would adopt a homeless baby rabbit, and in one case a baby groundhog whose parents apparently had been lost to traffic on a nearby road. Uh, The other cats always respected these adoptions, as far as we could see, never attempting to molest these adoptees, who soon learned to fend for themselves and wandered off to take up their own lives. Got another question? No. Well, you see, maybe uh, nature isn't as cold and cruel as Charles Darwin thought. Well, you know, that's true. You know, it's like the survival of the fittest. Well, yeah, I guess that, that's true. But on the other hand, uh, there, there does seem to be a streak of goodness and kindness in nature, strangely enough. Now, I think there is a, it's kind of a unique sort of gentleness uh, that, that pops up sometimes when you least expect it. But anyway, these cats of ours even got along with their local peers of other species. Now, we customarily fed the cats out on the back deck. I know that's a dumb idea, but on any given evening, you might remember this. I think I probably picked you up and showed you through the window. Uh, It was typical to look out and watch cats, ours, and their pals from among the local ferals, possums, raccoons, and even the occasional porcupine, peacefully taking turns eating and drinking or occasionally feeding together. Now, despite modern fears about rabies and other sanitation medical menaces, uh, not once did any case of disease break out among our cats. As for feline funeral customs, these became apparent to me as well. There would always be an alpha 
cat, you know, a big cheese, either a male or sometimes a female. Uh, while all the cats were friendly and sociable all the time, one could always tell the alpha because he or she would keep that tail up in the air when in the midst of the community and apparently was the one allowed to approach and brush up against me, you, and other members of the human family or visitors. Now, as I understand it, that brushing up technique they use is uh, an indication for a cat of ownership or marking of territory. Glad they don't mark territory the way dogs do. That would have been a mess. Anyway, I clearly remember one time when the entire cat community seemed upset. The alpha, whose name was Kitty Wells, had been missing for a whole day, and that was a sure sign of trouble. There was a heated crawl space under the house for the cats to go during storms or cold weather, and that's where several of the cats seemed to be trying to lead me. Sure enough, there was the body of Kitty. Uh, from the look of her body, I strongly suspected snake bite, not very reassuring if it took place under our house. Now, there was a certain copperhead snake that was a sort of local equivalent of Shere Khan of Jungle Book fame around there at the time, but we could never prove that he was the culprit. Uh, couldn't get enough evidence to convict, uh, so to speak. In any case, several interesting things happened as I removed and buried Kitty's body. All eight of the remaining cats sat respectfully around us in a perfect circle, following me to the burial site at the edge of the woods. They again sat respectfully in a circle as I dug a hole, placed the body, and refilled the grave. I wondered if I shouldn't have been reading from the Bible or something. The moment I was finished, the others watched as Gray Bear, a big blue male of American short-haired descent, approached me and rubbed against my leg, with his tail held high. Obviously, here was the new alpha. We were amazed again to watch as each cat took turns sitting or lying by Kitty's grave each day for nearly a week. Signs of mourning? Surely. Signs of a feline belief in or instinct about some sort of afterlife? A definite possibility. You see, each cat has had his or her own favorite place to lounge on our back deck. And for months afterward, none of them would lie in Kitty's favorite spot, and they often would look and sniff there as they passed it. On several occasions, I saw one or more of the cats sitting in front of that spot as if Kitty was still there. Many examples of this can be cited from the behavior of other animals who often act, at least it seems to me, as though animals are there that they can see and we can't. As a matter of fact, I have an interesting photograph. I think I'll put it up on the uh, talking, I should have done it already, talking points page of the show on uh, behindtheparanormal.com. And this um, is a picture of some cats with what can only be described as very, very fuzzy images of other cats who weren't in the picture. <laughs> it's kind of sitting there. And uh, why don't you check that out in 24 hours or so. I'll see if I can't put it up. All right. So have you ever run into animal ghosts? Well, not not directly that I can remember. My view? Well, no. Okay. Well, I don't know. You don't always work with me. But anyway, I, I think that I, I would have to answer no to that, not directly. But over the last four decades, I have often run into people who are sure they have especially in the case of much-loved pets. Now, I've never captured a photo like that myself. I just described one that is is uh, out there. It was taken by someone I know, and uh, that does happen. Uh, certainly, there is far more to animals than ever occurred to the arrogant uh, 18th and 19th century minds who founded modern science, shall we say. So aren't there experiments going on with animal communication? Yeah, as you say, there's a lot more to animals than meets the eye. Uh, research is showing that many creatures use sophisticated forms of verbal and possibly telepathic communication. Uh, this seems especially true with, with creatures like dolphins, who apparently refer to each other by name. I'll say that again. Dolphins have been found to refer to each other by name, apparently, 
with the sounds they make and have already begun rudimentary communication with humans. Uh, there's even a name for this, this study of animal communication. It's, it's now called zoosemiotics. Okay, so, so much for dumb animals. Yeah, I guess so. And as you might guess, we feel that the multiverse theory can explain many of this, uh, these uh, forms of awareness quite easily. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention birds, too. Birds, when they say, apparently have been found to use sophisticated syntax and grammar in their sounds. So, hey, I, I know a lot of people can't even use proper grammar and syntax, so birds can do it. Why can't we? Yeah, so what about people? What are the ideas of the human afterlife? All right, well... The oldest, I always look back, as I did in my last book, to the oldest cultures that were in continuous existence since who knows when. Now, these include the Aborigines of Australia, uh, the Andaman and Nicobar Islanders of the Indian Ocean region, and the Bushmen of Africa. And all of these cultures have a continuous tradition reaching back between 30,000 and as much as 100,000 years, sometimes even 150,000 years by their DNA is the Bushmen. These traditions uh, don't make any distinction between an afterlife and what we would call heaven. Now, indeed, their languages don't even contain words for evil, sin, or sinner as we know them. Now, maybe this is because their societies aren't riddled with violence, greed, or individualism, and it seems that it took civilization and society as we know it to create evil on the scale we endure it today. Anyway, because we have plenty of words for evil, sin, and violence. Now, the concepts of the afterlife in these primal societies set the popular tone for many common beliefs that have survived to this day, strangely enough. And we'll, we're going to get into those toward the end of this series of two shows. Uh, from a limited modern point of view, that is. Now, these early beliefs indicate a universal understanding of the survival of bodily death, but the clear picture is not of a life that ends and then starts again in some spirit form, but of life that continues very consistently with your current one. Still, there is a view that the afterlife is indeed a better place, or should be, where danger, pain, hunger, and loss are at a minimum, or maybe don't even exist at all. There is a concept of people having different parts that may be in different worlds at the same time, with different roles to play. This was all explained to me on a wooden porch of an old store outside Melbourne, Australia, on a hot summer day in 1979 by a little Aboriginal guy named Mindy Louie. And in that conversation, which lasted nearly seven hours, was the genesis of my own theories about the afterlife in heaven, where, upon bodily death, we transition or translate to lives and bodies where we already live in nearby parallel worlds. And more about that later. Maybe that's wrong, but that's certainly what I've developed. The Aborigines themselves even symbolized these translations in tribal initiation ceremonies for young people and in their funeral rites. So what about our own civilization? Well, our own lovely, wonderful, lovable, complex, muddled, and shallow-thinking society, well, uh, our first cultural ancestors were the Sumerians, who mysteriously popped onto the scene in the Middle East nearly 8,000 years ago. Now, these are the people I refer to in my book, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, which was the prize that our lucky call was going to get. These people started out, much like the primal peoples we just talked about, as worshippers of one God. People find that very surprising, that the ancient... People, uh, very ancient, remote peoples of the past were monotheists. They were worshippers of one God, apparently. That's what it seems to point to. Uh, or at least of one divine family of three members. Sound familiar? And suddenly they ended up with a pantheon of thousands of gods, demigods, demons, and spirits. Uh, that seemed to happen all over the world. Now how that occurred, we've discussed on other shows, and I talk about it in that book. But their depressing afterlife beliefs, at least the Sumerians, 
developed accordingly, and they oddly prefigure some of our own beliefs. Now, the Sumerians believed that physical death sent the unfortunate person's spirit, and this included saints and sinners alike, to a dreary place that roughly translates into English as the house of dust, where they would literally eat dust for a year and then fade off into oblivion. Now, I think this, maybe you'll agree with me here, Ben, I think this corresponds perfectly with my belief that the Sumerian religion went from monotheism to polytheism because of deliberate corruption by what we refer to as parasites who made people think they were gods. And these are, for those who don't listen to the show frequently, these are, oddly enough, entities we have found in our paranormal research for decades. They seem to be parallel world entities that encourage human suffering and chaos so they can feed on the resulting energy. They're not servants of Satan or anything. They're just life forms that seem to just feed like this, much like mosquitoes would do when, when, when they, they, they bite you or whatever. That, that seems to be what we found, oddly enough. But anyway, there's no room for heaven in that Sumerian view. Now, the only vague ray of hope was the Sumerians' belief that somebody, someday, would eventually come up with a ritual to cure death. That sounds like us with our blind faith in science. Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of us feel that science someday will solve everything. You know, we, we, it's, it's the new religion in a way, and I, I think that's pretty dumb. Anyway, it does sound like that. But the Egyptians, um, the next major, some of the next major guys coming along on the scene of history here, uh, people, people might be surprised to hear that they were more cheerful. Uh, for most people, ancient Egypt conjures, conjures up thoughts of mummies and rows of tombs uh, of a people obsessed with death. In fact, the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with life. With them, we get back to what seems like multiverse ideas of a consistent, continuing, and unified life. And in most cases, the afterlife was seen as an enhanced version of the current one, much as it was in remote times. The Egyptians believed that the body had three souls, and that the ideal afterlife situation, I suppose you could call that heaven, would be to reunite these three souls in the next world. This could be done if the physical body remained intact, and I guess the idea that we have a physical body in the next parallel world anyhow somehow got past them. But anyway, this desire to preserve the physical body resulted in the practice of mummification and piling up graves and tombs. Uh, with I should say piling up graves and tombs with food and other earthly objects, including books and games. So how much did these ancient religions influence each other? Well, they influenced each other a lot. You know, there's a lot of thought that these people were very isolated. Uh, even when it came to commerce, um, there's a lot of evidence that there was vast amounts of even global commerce in the prehistoric world. That's maybe a subject for another show, but uh, the, and but certainly the exchange of ideas was was all over the place. There are a lot of ideas that, that apparently are universal that came from this place or that place, but was shared. So anyway, one of the best examples of that is a religion most religion uh, most uh, listeners I should say probably never heard of, but I think it deeply influenced afterlife beliefs among the Greeks, Romans, Jews, Christians and Muslims. It has had more influence in today's popular concepts of the afterlife and heaven than any other religion in my opinion. And I'm talking about Zoroastrianism. Something probably most people never heard of. Uh, that religion arose in Persia, or modern Iran, in the 6th, 6th century BC, thanks to a fellow named Zoroaster. Zoroaster was considered a prophet. Now here we have the first really clear and dogmatic teachings about which, what have come down to us as a good god and a bad god, who are in a cosmic struggle where good would eventually win. And there we have God and Satan in today's popular mind. Now theologically, obviously, they're not equal, 
But a lot of people's minds, popularly speaking, they do seem to be equal, uh, as people understand it. Uh, that first was was um, talked about with any uh, at any length and with any clarity by Zoroastrianism. Now, Zoroastrianism also had clear ideas about the immortality of the soul, angels and demons as they are popularly understood today, eternal joy for the good and eternal punishment for the wicked, and even the idea of saviors. Now, all these ideas and more found their first real and consistent teacher, as I say, in Zoroaster. Now, the Muslim conquests of the 7th century pretty much wiped out the Zoroastrians. There were only today only about 10,000 left. Uh, but uh, that didn't happen before their ideas spread far and wide. And these ideas spread a lot on trade routes because there was a lot of trade, even between China and the West, even in, in the, these faraway times. And people would uh, people of all sorts of uh, of uh, backgrounds would mingle. Yeah, you know, you know. I sometimes think, you know, in the, the Star Wars movie, the first one from the seventies, where uh, they uh, Obi Wan Kenobi takes them to that uh, outpost where all these crooks are and stuff, and uh, Han Solo gets the ship and all. You know, I've never seen Star Wars. I, yeah, I have, but how are you connecting that with the Silk Road? Well, because 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 th- th- that's the sort of places these were. People of all kinds, not different species, I shouldn't think, but all, unless the cats were involved again. But all sorts of different people from all sorts of different places, exchanging ideas, talking, mingling. Oh, right. And that's, that's the idea. It's Monday, isn't it? Well, no, it's just like I wouldn't like mix ancient history with Star Wars. Well, yeah, I'm a weird Even thing. though some people are like, let's, let's interpret it as Greek heroes and stuff. It's yeah. like, Luke's never had an original idea in his life. Well, and, and <laughs> so anyway, well, um, anyway these... what about the big three, Jews, Christians, and Muslims? All right, well, yeah, the people of the book. These are people who rely on the book, whether it be the Bible or the Quran or what. Well, anyway, Judaism is unusual. I'd even say refreshing among religions because it's far more concerned with how to live life the right way here and now than it is about what comes afterward. And we're going to take just a brief commercial break, and I'm going to finish answering Ben's question in just a minute. Stay with us on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. WOON, 1240 AM, com. New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Be right back. Everything you know is wrong. Hi, I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Paul Eno. Check out our show, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, here on ON 1240 AM on Mondays on our new drive time slot at 6 p.m. The paranormal is not what you think it is. You're going to examine the whole thing from a whole new perspective on our show, and we expect that you're going to be very surprised. Do not check your brain at the door. You're going to need it. Be there. Yeah, and we are back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. We're talking about what is heaven tonight, the first of two shows in which we're going to discuss that, because it's a big subject, and we've already had some excitement generated about, uh, about that. And Ben had just asked me, what about the, the big three, so to speak, Jews, Christians, and Muslims? What do they believe about heaven? Well, as I was saying, Judaism is, is kind of refreshing because it's far more concerned with how to live life the right way here and now than it is about what comes afterward. Uh, as a Jewish friend of mine once said, Dying is easy. It's living that's difficult. Boy, that's true. The Talmud and the Torah, Jewish sacred books, have very little to say about anything but this life. In fact, there is no official Jewish teaching that I know of about the afterlife. There are plenty of opinions and debates, plenty of schools of thought. Uh, We've even had a number of Jewish listeners express enthusiasm for our own multiverse ideas on the subject. Uh, the afterlife uh, in Hebrew was known as Olam Haba, which is essentially translated the world to come. And uh, there is an understanding that resurrection and reincarnation are possible in certain Jewish schools of thought. That has been uh, that opinion has been expressed. 
The most common afterlife word used in the Hebrew Bible is Sheol. Uh, in Hebrew, of course, often mistranslated into English as hell, because I suppose it depends how you understand hell. We're going to do more. Show, we're going to do a show on that. Uh, but anyway, it's usually translated into English, and most people from this end understand it in its Zoroastrian connotations. In fact, there is no official concept of eternal punishment in Judaism. No official concept. There are some unofficial ones. Sheol simply means grave, which in turn means a place of waiting, not wailing, waiting. And the waiting, presumably, is for the promised Messiah. Now, since about 200 B.C., though, the idea of an eternal reward slash heaven has become more popular among the Jewish people. The great scholar Hillel, who preceded Jesus by about 65 years, was a tremendous influence on him and is still considered one of the main go-to guys on Jewish thought, said in so many words, the afterlife, worry about it when you get there. I kind of like that. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, how about... Christians, they seem to have some complicated ideas about an afterlife. Mm, well, here we go into the controversial part of the show. Uh, Christians have always claimed to be direct descendants of the Jews. Okay, The earliest Christians are those in the, quote, Jesus movement, unquote, as modern scholars, some modern scholars like to call it, were Jews who never considered themselves anything else. Some non-Jews, who were known as Gentiles, decided to follow Jesus in the very beginning, too, as far as is known, most of these converted to Judaism first. As a matter of fact, it's believed that the uh, earliest apostles required that, or at least suggested it strongly. Now, for the most part, everybody continued to follow the, follow the Jewish law and to attend temple services faithfully uh, if they lived in or near Jerusalem, or the synagogue, if they local synagogue, if they lived somewhere else. They fervently believed in the resurrection of Jesus, of course, in some form or other. Some of them said they had seen him with their own eyes during that mysterious 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. That, that's a period worth a show in itself. But anyway, they still considered Jesus another great Jewish teacher like Hillel and a king, the king in most cases, who had taken Judaism to a whole new level. And they believed he would return forthwith to establish the kingdom of God, whatever that might be. I really can't stress that enough. Uh, there was a belief that and, and if you read the Gospels, it kind of says that he wasn't going to be long. And as time went by, things began to, to get a little confused in, in the Christian movement. Well, anyway, few people today realize that, um, as I say, as time went by, there were upwards of 15 different flavors of early Christians. Some believed that Jesus had been a spirit. Uh, others that he was an ordinary, if brilliant and holy man. Others uh, said that he was God's adopted son. That became a big bone of contention. Still others believed in reincarnation and that Jesus was the reincarnation of Moses or Elijah. Others believed that marriage and family should end then and there so that people could go out into the desert or at least sit and wait for the second coming, which, as I say, was supposed to be forthwith. So on, so on, and so on. But as far as I know, it didn't occur to anyone that Jesus had come to found an entirely new religion. The kingdom of God, whether physical or spiritual, was not considered something for the afterlife or heaven. Uh, then came along your favorite guy. Oh, I know. Yep. Well, along came someone who changed everything. Uh, Paul of Tarsus, otherwise known as St. Paul, with whom I have always had a love-hate relationship. And here's where we need some serious explanation to understand how Christian ideas about heaven developed. Uh, every modern Christian knows or should know about the ninth chapter of the New Testament's Acts of the Apostles, where Paul is on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus but is knocked off his horse by a brilliant light and a voice from the sky. 
which converts him to what would be soon be called Christianity. He proceeds to remake Christianity and lay the foundation for, among other things, all our ideas about the afterlife and heaven. Now, I'm sorry. I know that I'm named after him and all, but even when I was studying for the priesthood, and this didn't necessarily endear me to some of the faculty members, I found everything about St. Paul to be a little bit fishy, sometimes a lot fishy. There are all sorts of reasons why I feel this way, but suffice it to say that I don't feel that Paul was what he said he was. Uh, and I'm not now I'm not saying that he was a con man or a crook or anything like that. I believe he, he believed absolutely what he was teaching. I think he was very sincere. But what I believe that he was this is gonna sound kind of funny. I believe he was not really a Jew, uh, born to Judaism at least. I think he was a failed pagan convert to Judaism, something that was not that uncommon in those days. He has every mark of it. There were people in those days known as God fearers. They were Gentiles or non-Jews who loved God, even sometimes tried to follow the Jewish law, but they didn't actually become Jews, and the Jews respected them as as people who uh, were, were attempting to be righteous people. But some people actually made the conversion to Judaism, and sometimes that wasn't a good idea for a number of different reasons, political, uh, social, it, it just sometimes didn't work, and I think Paul was one of these people. Uh, I think he had a serious axe to grind with the Jewish priests at the temple in Jerusalem for reasons we don't have time to discuss. All right, but let's move on. Paul literally proceeded to take over Christianity, and over the next few centuries, his influence resulted in the stamping out of all Christian groups that didn't agree with his wildly un-Jewish notions. Now, the idea that Jesus is literally God and should be worshipped in his own right The idea of the church as we know it, and most of the New Testament itself, came straight from Paul. The concept of a divine Messiah, I'm not saying it's not true. I mean, I'm just saying this this, this is the historical background here. The concept of a design Messiah, I should say divine Messiah alone, is so alien to Judaism that to consider Paul's Christianity and traditional Judaism to have any real connection at all is ludicrous. I I found out about some of this stuff when I studied Hebrew, because I wanted to read Genesis in the original which is another long story. We've done whole shows on that. And they are wonderful, generous people. And they're very careful about your feelings if they know you are not Jewish. And it took a long time for me to get to know uh, several rabbis who finally felt comfortable discussing with me some of the opinions that some of their scholars had about this. And they said some of the ideas that, that, that early Christianity supposedly had were really wildly un-Jewish. And uh, there were a lot of things in the Bible that indicate that the early Jews of this, of this period anyway could not accept many of the teachings of Jesus. But my question is, were they really teachings of Jesus? Jesus was a brilliant Jewish scholar in the tradition of Hillel. He, he was, uh, I believe, of high and noble birth. He was not a poor person. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew word used for, uh, contra- I should say, for a carpenter, that's often interpreted as, you know, poor carpenter, was that his father was actually a, a rather well-to-do building contractor in those periods. Um, his presentation in the temple, poor kids of that period were not presented in the temple. People of, of noble birth were, and, and at least people who were well-to-do. So, I mean, nothing against Jesus. None of this is his fault. But th- this, this is the kind of background we're looking at here, and it all, believe it or not, does have to do with our ideas of heaven and the afterlife once we get to that. Anyway, it can be argued very convincingly, I think, that Jesus did not found Christianity. Paul did. 
And as I say, I believe Paul was absolutely sincere. And, and don't get me wrong, Jesus is my oldest personal friend. And I believe absolutely that he rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, so did a lot of other people on the same day, and in more ways than one. And we're anticipating kind of the end of our show here, uh, the next one. But anyway, if you look at Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two to 53, as Jesus died on the cross, and this is from the Greek, quote, the rocks were torn and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the holy ones who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming forth out of the tombs after his, Jesus' resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. Now nobody talks much about that, do they? But these two little verses here from Matthew are key to understanding the Christian idea of heaven, even though most rank-and-file Christians don't have a clue how deeply this really goes. So anyway, I don't blame Jesus for any of this. I blame Paul for the resulting doctrinal mess. Okay, so you can argue that everything Paul taught is all in the New Testament. Yeah, it's all in the Bible. Of course it is. The bulk of the New Testament is made up of the epistles, letters written by Paul to various churches. Many people don't realize that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written after the epistles and the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, because they all thought they were going to die, so they didn't well, they bother thought, yeah, writing Jesus, it all down. Yeah, it was going to be second coming, yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, but by that time, Paul's theology had already taken over the church. So the Gospel writers, uh, two of whom were not original apostles, and there's some debate about who actually wrote these, uh, were, were essentially... Um, Pauline theologians by that time. They, they, they were following the uh, ideas of Paul and not the ideas of, of other, uh, other people. So where did Paul get his ideas? Well, Tarsus, where Paul said he was from, was no one-horse town. It was a good-sized city in what's now Turkey, located on a major trade route from, among other places, Persia, as we said, Zoroastrianism. Places like this were major centers of education because of the diversity of the population, permanent and transient. Tarsus also was a center of the worship of Attis, a young god who, by some amazing coincidence, was born of a virgin on December 25th, was considered one with God the Father. Attis was killed by being nailed to a tree for the salvation of mankind. He rose from the dead after three days and was commemorated with bread and wine, which his followers believed were his body and blood. He was known as the Lamb of God. And the similarities go on and on and on. Now, there were even clashes between followers of Attis and those of Jesus about which one was the real God. Now, couple this with the Zoroastrian ideas pouring along the trade route from Persia and the ideas of the Greeks, as Plato said hands down that the soul is immortal, and we have the theology of Paul. Pagan, yes. Jewish, no. Meanwhile, there sat the original 11 apostles in Jerusalem, plus Matthias, who would replace Judas, These men, and very probably Mary Magdalene, whom the Orthodox Church refers to very interestingly as, quote, equal to the apostles, unquote, heard what Paul was up to. They essentially said, who the heck is this guy? And they summoned Paul to Jerusalem. Now, the only official record of this complicated meeting is in the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, traditionally thought to be written by St. Luke, who was an evangelist or a gospel writer, but not one of the original apostles. He was a bosom friend and follower of Paul. If what's written there is accurate, then these people, who had heard the gospel right out of the mouth of Jesus, sat there as this newcomer told them what was what. Yes, the meeting was very contentious, but in that meeting lay the Christian church, and among other things, its eventual ideas about the afterlife. 
Now, it's interesting. The Orthodox have an icon of Peter and Paul embracing one another. And every indication is that they couldn't stand each other. In fact, in moments of grim jocularity, many Orthodox will refer to that icon with the thought, the only time that could have happened was in heaven. Okay, so what about heaven for Christians? Okay, well, uh, that's a big question because that involves most of the ideas of heaven that we have today. And we have yet to talk about the Hindus, the Buddhists, and the Muslims, but we will do so in the next show. But we are uh, coming down. I wanted to get to a couple of emails here because we're, we're sort of out of time for our discussion here. But we will have a part two to this, which will be in two weeks here on WON 1240 AM and com. We'll talk about the Christian heaven, the Muslim heaven, and the popular heaven, things that most people believe about the afterlife but that their religions don't really teach. So send in your ideas. Uh, you can send them to me, paul at behindtheparanormal.com. We've had ideas lately ranging from rainbow bridges, uh, Ben, all the... Oh, God. <laughs> all the, well, exactly. Uh, and uh, we'll see what <laughs> people uh, come up with. And uh, is heaven as personal as that? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll see. And what does the Christian church actually teach? When the dust settled and all was said and done, and everybody agreed with Paul, what happened then? to the ideas and we'll get to that again in a couple of um, in two two weeks same time same station as they they always had said okay now there had there was there were one or two things that have come in that i did want to get to this evening and uh, we do receive emails from pretty much all over the world and people who are interested in many many different subjects and on this show we cover not just uh, the spiritual matters but the matters of ghosts ufos anything paranormal at all okay here uh is one from Cassie in Sarasota, Florida, who has written to us before. Okay, well, uh, this has nothing to do with heaven, so how young are people when they start to be abducted, or does it depend on the person? Okay, we're talking about alien abductions here, if you believe in that sort of thing. Now, this is a belief that people sometimes are taken from their homes, usually when they're asleep or in bed, uh, by something that is believed to be alien in one form or another, either from another planet or another dimension. or whatever. There are all kinds of ideas about it. And the early people report, who, who, I'm thinking particularly of um, the uh, folks in the early 1960s uh, who said that this happened to them, medical experiments done on people, apparent uh, indications of genetic manipulation going on, you, you name it, it supposedly has been associated with abductions. So uh, Cassie's question, how young are people when they start to be abducted does it depend on the person? Well, we're not experts on this subject, and I would, but I did look it up, and I did ask uh, our friend Stan Friedman, uh, from, who's been on the show a number of times, I sent him an email. He said, well, the youngest person, as far as we know, is, is, has been roughly two years old, and apparently his parents stood in the, this, this occurred in the late 1970s, his parents stood in the room, and to their horror, supposedly watched greys or these common form of aliens walk up to the bed and, and take the child right through the wall of the room and into some ship. Now, again, whether this actually happened, this is the report. But two people swore they saw this. And the child was, uh, they, of course, were hysterical. The child was returned several hours later, apparently none the worse for wear. But there's an example of a two-year-old child. Now, the... Um, we had a question a few weeks ago on the show uh, who was the oldest person who ever reported being abducted. And it was a man, what was I believe he was uh, almost 80 years old in England. He was fishing, minding his own business by a canal. 
and uh, in England, and bingo, he claimed he was abducted and then returned to the canal. I don't know if he caught any fish, but he had a rough day that day. So apparently it uh, might depend on the person, especially if genetic matters are involved. There are theories that these aliens, if that's what they are, are trying to uh, revivify their own race with our DNA. They might be time travelers, supposedly, who have come back to do the same thing. Uh, descendants of ours, as it were, who need to uh, somehow strengthen their DNA, which somehow got messed up. Th- th- these are all ideas that are out there. Who uh, knows? Who knows? That That's true. And, you know, the latest idea that we've been discussing a lot on the show, is, uh, and a lot of people have been asking about, is are there possibilities that these aliens are actually parasites? Parasites in our sense of the term, these entities that, that, that just are not what they appear to be, push buttons and feed upon negative human energies. Certainly uh, the, the demons and evil spirits of human folklore that are existing in all cultures and uh, they often are given religious uh, connotations that they I don't think they actually have, but there we are. And we actually had a case where... Someone wrote to us from New York City, who was an amateur paranormal investigator, began to apply our methods in a particular case and said that as soon as she, she just got the feeling that this ghost in this house was not what it said it was and said, made it clear, I don't believe you're so-and-so. And, and the whole thing immediately changed and the people started seeing gray aliens in the house. So that generated a lot of questions. Are we or are we not dealing with what there appears to be? And I think very often we're not dealing with something that is what it appears to be. Uh, okay, here is um, here is a. This is from. Oh, he says we can use his full name, so you know, I'm not going to get in trouble with you if I say his name. Brian Halgus from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's uh, WYZY, our um, good old uh, station down there. He must listen to us on Sunday nights on CBS in Pittsburgh, and he has a rather lengthy one here, but it's a good question. Okay, so dear Paul and Ben, great show. I listen to your podcasts at work, and I really enjoy them. Thank oh, you. Does boss know that? Yes. Okay, so my question is, I occasionally wake up and find anomalous scratches on my body, generally my neck area. The scratches are three or four parallel scratches, about five or six inches long. Now, I have nothing in my bed to scratch me, and I have tried to scratch myself deliberately, but cannot replicate these scratches. Uh, to add more to this mystery, recently at work, I had an overwhelming su- overwhelming sudden itch on my forearm. I scratched it as one would ordinarily itch, but it looked like uh, I, l- I looked at the affected area and the scratches were visible. Uh, last week, I was sitting in my bed, shirtless, and preparing to take a shower, and our new, ba- our new baby uh, cockatoo, uh, I think, started... Sh- screaming bloody murder and I got up to investigate my daughter saw me and pointed my arm scratches so I I have looked up the old hag and I'm wondering if uh, she's at my at work on if she's at work on me okay let let me stop you right there just just explain what that is there's an old folklore uh, story tradition that has to do with what's called the old hag and it's supposed to be uh, people sometimes see this as an old woman uh, sitting on their chest as they are trying to sleep. And it's today it's commonly interpreted as a sleep disorder, and they have trouble breathing and things of this kind. And that that's what he's referring to. All right, so I do not wake up at night with uh, a feeling that someone is sitting on my chest like she supposedly does. Any insight from you will be appreciated. By the way, I have spoken to others, and I am aware of this phenomenon as being... Somewhat not uncommon. 
Well, uh, certainly th- that that's correct, uh, Brian. It is not uncommon. But the question is, that doesn't mean that we can understand exactly what it is from every point of view. There can be several phenomena that occur like this that can be interpreted as the, the old hag or some something of that kind, uh, such as you've described. I'm very interested in, in the, the idea that, that the bird kind of went nuts and screaming bloody murder, as you said. I've heard cockatoos, and they can be pretty loud. They, you know, when you uh, went by, and then, of course, your daughter noticed this mark on your arm. I remember a question we had last night from a listener who had heard me say that I had sat down with Bud Hopkins at one time when Ben and I were in West Virginia at a, at a conference. And Bud had showed me, Bud Hopkins being a, a, probably one of the leading experts on alien abduction, such as we just discussed, and he had an, al- an a- album of photos of people with various marks on their bodies, wounds, bruises, and scratches, such as you described, who, from people who claimed they had been abducted by aliens. And the first thing I said was, Bud, wow, th- th- these are things I see very often in poltergeist cases. Poltergeist being a, uh, the German words for noisy spirit, and what they do, they, uh, they're very, I believe, we believe they're parasites who've gotten so strong that they can have a tremendous effect on the physical environment. Uh, I have been injured by them, uh, flying television sets, things of that kind, uh, only only twice in 40 years, so they're not that common, at least not in my experience, but they're pretty awful. So all these things could have some relevance to what's happening to you. You might have a parasite problem. I would, lo- I would like to know if you have had any other uh, phenomena that you think might not be related to this, but that could be interpreted as paranormal. Not to reach here, but if you have had anyone, or if your neighbors, if you can freely talk about this with them, have had any sort of uh, apparitions, strange noises, uh, odd things happening in the middle of the night or during the day or any other things moving when they shouldn't be, uh, even something as, as minor as, as putting down your car keys and then turning around and they're not there. All those sorts of things are, are relevant somewhat. So keep in touch with us. I'd like to know about that. I am very concerned, however, whenever there are physical uh, attacks, well, I'm not going to call them attacks, but f- physical uh, manifestations of this kind. This is one of the things, because when I began to see it early in my, my career in the early 70s, I began to say, there's more about this than spirits. There's more physicality to areas of the paranormal such as this than a lot of people think there are, because you've got physical scratches going on. The only case uh, Ben has seen, and he, he stepped away from his mic for just a minute, but the only case Ben has uh, seen of this kind that's of relevance would be uh, the in the dark case from footsteps in the attic and there were examples where the the uh, the husband of this young lady would have bruises on his body that and and scratches that didn't really come from anywhere and strangely enough only a few years this case was going on this is the longest case we've ever worked on 10 years and only uh, 2 years ago I was ben, ben did not witness this, but I was over there, and we had a, a shaman, the one who is now Ben's mentor, working on this case. He literally did battle with this parasite and had claw marks all over his body when he finished. And this is um, something that, that, that happens. Shamans get into this, and fortunately, this one seems to have done the trick over there. So uh, I think you might be dealing with possible parasites here. Uh, I would ask you to keep in touch with us about this and to find out what, to, to let us know what is going on uh, as as we go. And you have uh, suggested a uh, website here. I'm not going to give it out publicly, but uh, I'm going to take a look at the photographs you mentioned that are on this site, and I will get back to you on this. Uh, this email came in just before 
last night's show have not had a chance to look at it and uh, we will i will do some and we'll get back to but keep us posted on this and i will be in touch uh brian uh, god bless you and uh, we'll be uh, we will be as i say in touch now we have uh just a couple of minutes here left but we've got what do we got here oh, okay we have uh, a question from Kyle Dayton, who was our uh, Southwest reporter for the show. Uh, she's a well-known UFO expert, very highly respected on that. But she gets into other areas of the paranormal, too. And she had asked a question that I had promised to look up and answer. And I'll repeat it here. In regard to the mystery surrounding life of Casper Hauser, one theory suggests that he may have originally been from a parallel universe. Okay, well, Casper Hauser was a young man who appeared in a rather disheveled and woebegone manner, in Nuremberg, Germany, in 1828, May 26, 1828, to be specific. And he just appeared there on the streets of Nuremberg. He carried a letter that addressed, addressed to the captain of the 4th Squadron of the 6th Cavalry Regiment, uh, Captain von Wessening, and its heading read uh, to him, and it was, it was a message, either take care of this boy or shoot him. That's what it said, unfortunately. And there is... Uh, uh, no evidence, in, in my opinion, Kyle, that this particular person was from a parallel universe. Now, there have been plenty of occasions when there were. There's every indication of this boy who did stay in town and did grow up there and said he had a memory, and there was another indication, too, from, from another source, that he was brought up, apparently he might have been an illegitimate child or something, he was brought up literally confined to a basement and had only been released a day or two before he was found on the streets of Nuremberg. So I don't see any indication from this case that he was um, uh, from any, any kind of parallel universe, a, a, a drop-in, as you might call it. Uh, we've seen many indications of this. One, one of the cases that listeners uh, often find very interesting are uh, two that I know of from uh, Tokyo in the airport where people turned up very confused, wearing clothes, such as nobody had ever seen, with passports from countries that never existed, at least not in our reality, and speaking languages nobody understood, and one of them at least died screaming in an insane asylum because he didn't, you know, apparently didn't know where he was. These are all possibilities of people coming in from other, you know, parallel realities that we believe are around us all the time and that we proceed through in a logical manner because of our consciousness. We don't notice these changes in these worlds because we proceed through them in a manner that we kind of all create together that's logical and gives us the illusion of time passing. Okay. So there we are. I don't think uh, Casper was from a parallel universe, but a lot of people seem to, seem to be uh, from these situations, and uh, there are recorded cases of that, people both appearing and disappearing from this one. Uh, one case I, I noticed from England that I actually look, looked into when I was there. Well, the guy who just sort of like... Like and he was just like going for a run, and then he just started exactly. appearing yeah. somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot his name. Uh, he was going for a run with a jog, from, uh, from, on a jog from some, and he just he literally it was in front of everybody. He tripped, fell to the road, and disappeared. Never seen again. Other people have turned up later in other buildings, and sometimes other countries. So it's a really weird world out there <laughs> where this parallel universe thing can have two sides. Anyway, we are out of time, and uh, we will be talking about heaven again in two weeks, so stay tuned for that. And we would welcome any comments uh, of any kind. Uh, for those, especially fans of St. Paul, let me know what you think. I'm sure you will. Anyway. Anyway. Okay, so many thanks to our producer, Denise. And we'll see you next Monday, May 2nd at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, right here on WON 1240 AM. 
and ONWorldwide.com. My dad and I will welcome author and Bigfoot expert Philip Spencer to talk about the Connecticut, uh, not the Connecticut, the Kentucky wild man. There are plenty of wild men in Connecticut too. Yeah, I know. From there, yeah. So in the meantime, turn to turn to our Sunday evening CBS Radio edition in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at www.newskyradio.com. On May 1st, my dad and I will talk with Andy Colvin, who says that he has a number of experiences with Mothman and has photographed the critter. Okay, in the meantime, we leave you with a statement from the Irish poet Oscar Wilde. Weird guy. An American, given a choice between going to heaven and hearing a lecture about heaven, would go to the lecture. Unquote. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.